SMG Solar Music Group, LLC, and First Fam Radio Podcast. This is In Studio. We are fortunate enough to be joined this week by an individual who has made history in their own right, um, a person that seems to be, uh, by proof of action, a brilliant business mind, and someone we hope to just hang out with for a uh, couple of minutes here. We're not going to keep him all night, but we're definitely going to try to pick his brain and so hopefully some of his success rubs off on us and ends up falling right into our pockets. I'm Music Matisse. I'm joined on this episode as every single episode by my co-host. First fam, chill. Always a pleasure, man. We do what we do. Hopefully we can make some history of our own. But again, this is the Solo Music Group LLC and First Fam Radio Podcast. Our special guest this evening is an individual who Many people didn't even know what his name was. They weren't familiar, for the most part, as the general public is concerned, what he looked like. But he has been very instrumental in creating some music history um, that can't be denied. For those of you who are out there listening to us, we would like for you to put your hands, your thoughts, your DMs, and everything else together, and welcome Mr. Tobin Austin to our show. How you guys doing? Thank you very much for allowing me to be on here. So good to see you guys and talk to you guys. That's fabulous. I, I don't know if I really deserve that introduction, but I appreciate you for doing it nonetheless. Um, I, I think by the time this conversation is over, um, our audience is going to really know that you definitely deserve it. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize what it takes to work behind the scenes of the music business. I think there are a lot of stereotypes um, and stuff that isn't known. I think a lot of the artists, particularly the up-and-coming artists, the younger kids of this generation and the previous generations, they didn't understand what goes on behind the scenes. They look at the flash, they look at the girls, they look at, you know, the material stuff. It's like you talk to them and they don't understand that there are cogs and pieces and people who, on a business level, move this thing, you know, and you were definitely one of those individuals. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. To get started... Can you just reintroduce yourself and give us a little background on where you grew up, where you were born, and what your childhood was like? Okay, yes. My name is Tobin T.C. Costin. I go by T.C. or Big Tobe. Uh, I was born in Texas. Um, my father was a military man um, mm. my entire, pretty much my entire life growing up. Uh, my mother was in uh, retail management, and I lived all over pretty much Germany. So I, my father was stationed, in, uh, born in Texas, Fort Hood, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, moved to Kansas, lived in Germany, lived in Texas, Oklahoma. Most of my life growing up was in Germany. So wow. graduated high school there. Um, I often tell people uh, I wasn't poor by any means, but mm-hmm. I was probably working class, just slightly under uh, middle class. Anyone right. who's been in the military or knows how the military works, you don't make <laughs> a lot of money. But you do get to see the world, and that took every advantage of traveling to countries all over Europe, took every advantage traveling uh, to Asia and the United States, mm-hmm. Canada and Mexico. So I've had in Australia, so I took every advantage I had to travel the world and see people, different cultures, different uh, dynamic of people. And then after that, graduating from high school at a school called uh, Würzburg American High School in Germany. Mm-hmm. Shout out Würzburg Wolves. 
Um, I will tell you, I moved on to uh, Washington State, a small school called Gonzaga University. Right. Um, most people know it for our basketball team. Back when mm-hmm. I was there, we, we, we weren't quite uh, the uh, prowess uh, athletes that we are now. And uh, mm-hmm. the graduating from uh, the university, moved to the Bay Area, and then uh, started working with an individual named Master P. And Say that, that guy's name one more time. I'm sorry. Master P. Oh, okay. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> for most people who know me or, or know of me, they know there was this guy who worked with Master P, and then we, we kind of had our own. We split up, and then he obviously rose to uh, significant height and fame. And mm-hmm. I was kind of behind the scenes on some other projects and, and doing records like King George and Wet Boys and Fam Bam Click. And then I had my my own huge success mm-hmm. with uh, an album with Little Troy uh, called Sitting Fat Down South. Down South, yeah. The record was Wanna Be a Baller. And mm-hmm. uh, most people know it, Wanna Be a Baller, Shot Collar, 20-inch Blades on the Impala. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a very popular record when it's played today. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much been my career behind the scenes, doing records mm-hmm. and kind of trying to do something different and, and kind of being at the forefront of, of the industry and the business, but on an underground level. Right. Right. You know what I didn't realize? I knew who you were for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many text messages and DMs I received um, the past two weeks. We're just coming off of the No Limit Chronicles. Yeah. And that was one of the main questions people were asking me. Like, well, who's the guy with the glasses with the deep voice? What did he do? What did he do? And <laughs> I'm telling them how instrumental, you know, you were, as far as I've always known, in behind the scenes, you know, the business of No Limit. How long did you and Master P work together? We worked together for nine, uh, for three years. Uh, I came mm-hmm. on board in 1993. Mm-hmm. I, uh, because of St. Charles, um, mm-hmm. you know, People who don't know E40's <laughs> uncle St. Charles, I mm-hmm. think people know him in the industry. But if you don't know about him, uh, right. E40's uncle St. Charles, I will say, taught myself uh, about the music business and how to run a label and distribution. Mm-hmm. Master P, JT, the bigger figure, the folks from Sibo's camp, mm-hmm. uh, E40, Be Legit. He literally taught all of us how to put out records and be successful and, and understand the distribution game. So that's kind of the way the dynamic was from 93 to 96, Master P and I worked together. Okay. So when, once he left, as far as, you know, the previous companies and dealing with the SMGs and the intermittent records, once he left those situations and went to priority, you know, we're longer we're doing business with him? That's not true. I was part okay. of the of, of a priority. Okay. So, I left, uh, so when we split up, it was actually, we had finished the Dow South Husters, the Ice Cream Man, we mm-hmm. did TR, we did the True Record, and we did 99 Ways to Die. Mm-hmm. And then we, when we split, he did a few more, he, the album was done, but he did a few more songs and then put that out. And then the other piece was we were already in the process of working on the I'm About It movie. So okay. those are projects that I would say I was involved with, but we had split. And then by that time, the ice cream man kind of came out. And that was, even though I was part of that project, 
mm-hmm. he had our we had split and, and it was you know tc was no longer involved in no limit records at, at 90 in 96 96 i want to um go back to front you mentioned something previously that i didn't know didn't realize either two things you said you grew up in germany correct and you mentioned Wurzburg. yes you know what's really ironic about that? I grew what up is- in New York, strictly on the East Coast, when hip hop okay. was in its origin. Okay. I went into the military, and I was stationed in Schweinfurt. Oh, and- I know Schweinfurt. And Wurzburg. Oh my goodness. Now, now this is really gonna blow your mind. Coming from the East Coast, hip hop's new, there's no format, no guideline. So the only thing we know is what we're able to piece together and put together the rest of the world sitting outside. So they think that we have it all together, that we have this blueprint and this format for this culture. So that's why they were, they were not recipient of the E-40s early, the Easy es the Tony Drapers, the Rapalots, and all those labels that went on to become legendary and make millions of dollars. So I get over there and I'm in a barracks, four floors, 250 soldiers, First time in my life that I'm a minority in a sense of people around me. Everybody around me, with the exception of myself and three other soldiers out of 250 soldiers, was from the West Coast and the Midwest. Wow. I had no idea, Tobin, who Master P was. I had no idea who E-40 was. I had no idea who Too Short was. I learned about those guys when I moved to Germany in the military. So what years were that you were in the military over in Germany? This was 88 to 90. That's crazy because I was living there 88 to 90. See, that's, that's why I was asking that question because I think for some, we're not going to put it on blast because there's no need yeah, to. No. We don't need to tell each other how old we are. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, so um, I, I'm going to tell you another story. Maybe you know this or maybe you don't. I, uh, one of uh-huh. my best friends, Mike Brown, Mm-hmm. Went to the Wurzburg with me. We went, mm-hmm. or I went with him, however you want to say it. And he was the coach of the LA Lakers and the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers with LeBron James and with Kobe in LA. And then he went back to Cleveland. And now he's the first assistant with our Golden State Warriors here in the Bay. Wow. So he graduated. He graduated from school in '88, mm-hmm. but he he was that's where he went to school. His brother uh, Anthony Brown, who went went to school with me and we graduated together. Mm-hmm. He played uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cincinnati Bengals. And so, crazy. you know, it's crazy that you were living there around the same time I was living. But that's what endeared me to this type of music per se, because that's what made me, I'm over there, I get billboard when I can get it. But what I'm noticing is, you know, these guys that I've never heard of that are blasting in the barracks almost 24 hours, they're selling gold and platinum albums. They're not on MTV. They're not on the radio on the East Coast. You know, <laughs> yeah. New York shuns them. You know what I mean? But I'm watching I'm watching those certifications and I'm like, hold on a minute. What do I need to be doing to actually get a piece of this? That's what inspired me to actually start my own uh, yeah. um, marketing and promotions company back in the days, the dinosaur days we call them now, when you actually had to be on the street, you had to actually put up posters and stickers. And, you know, and I was telling St. Charles this uh, not long ago, one of the companies that I actually had as a client back then was SMG Solar. Wow. They had the inside the uh, CD case. It's crazy. It's like, for me though, it's like full circle because, you know, on whatever product he was putting out back then, him, like all the other independents, 
they would want to know what part of the country you were in so they could send you a t-shirt. They could send you yeah. CDs. I just yeah. escalated that and said, listen, the t-shirt would be nice, but I could set up, you know, your, your racks and everything in your mom and pop stores. Send yeah. me X amount of t-shirts for promo, X amount of CDs. And that's what really turned the key for me to get into the business was watching you all. So well, it's like, that's amazing. It, it's, it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. But I, I just wanted to tap into that part because people don't realize how powerful the overseas market is either and how influential it, it, it can it be. It is incredible over there. And I think, I think for me, I, I fell in love with hip hop, you know, mm -hmm. listening to, to run DMC's uh, Suck MC. Mm -hmm. And from that time, I wanted to be in this industry. Right. And then being over in Germany and cutting tracks over there and, and yeah. performing over there. And I don't know if you remember, they used to have a club called the Club Royale. Mm -hmm. They're downtown. I used yep. to perform over there. And, and, and so I, I was always very huge. In fact, my, one of my close friends, my closest, closest friend, uh, Cecil Costin, same last mm -hmm. name, relation, his mm -hmm. name is Elements. He still lives in Würzburg and he still performs there. So wow. it is, you know, and, and if it wasn't for COVID, we were going to, you know, I was going to spend about three weeks over there and spending some time with him and, mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, we were talking about recording some stuff and producing some stuff, but he, but it's, people are so focused and, and the Europeans are really about hip hop. They oh, do yeah. love EDM, but they also love hip hop. And yeah. It's something that they're in love with and it's amazing. Right. And and we both know that. And I tell kids all the time that I come across, you know, what should I do with this? What should I do with that? Never stop yourself, restrict yourself. Never be afraid to fly. You would be surprised, literally and emotionally, you would be surprised at what you can actually get accomplished in a place like Germany, yeah. you know, or, or some of these other countries that you might think are, are hostile. They're not always hostile. And if they're hostile towards the country that we come from, they still accept you for your music. They love the culture of what we do. That is so true. You know? You're so right. So, but um, to this up to this point, um, how did you? And I know they tapped on it a little bit during the uh, documentary, but what led you and Master P to end up crossing paths? And also, what was your background prior to even doing business with him? What type of business were you into prior to No Limit? Well, I was at that point when I connected with Master P, I was promoting shows and I, I had a radio show at, on the college campus at KAGU Radio in Spokane, Washington. Mm -hmm. So back then it was an alternative rock station and I had a show that was the only rap show in Spokane, Washington. Mm -hmm. Now this is classical, but back then I was playing, all, didn't matter where you were from, East Coast, West Coast, Down South, anything that you had, I was promoting those records. Right. And I had uh, I had an uh, I had a concert set up and this was you know ninety two mm -hmm. I had a concert set up and the the artist and it's crazy because someone asked me about this the other day I don't remember who the artist was they mm -hmm. bailed out on me so uh -huh. my god brother his name is Bernard Emerson um, he uh, owned a or he he managed a store called Foot Locker that people gone to and then he eventually had his own store called Kicking It. But when mm -hmm. he be in Foot Locker, Pete would always come in and get the new shoes. So every time they had the new releases, mm -hmm. he had the new shoes. And he, I was on the phone with him kind of just venting and said, man, this guy, he, he flaked on me. I need to get somebody here. I got this show Saturday. I've got these pre-sold tickets, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And he said, 
he said, well, man, I know this guy named Master P. He's not, like, really big. He's a local guy, but, you know, he's trying to build his name. Because right. by that time, you know, P wasn't really selling a lot of, a lot of records. He, you know, he was, he, was, he was established because he had the record store and he was trying to get his, his, his record label off the ground, but not really known uh, to the masses, if you will. And right. I said, man, I don't, and, and I said, I don't care who he is. If he can come up and he can rap, I need him. Right. So brought him up to Washington State, did a show, and he passed out a ton of stuff and a ton of T-shirts. And, and, and I don't think everyone was in love with him, but it was so in Spokane, Washington, that somebody came to do a, do a performance and were yeah. giving out T-shirts. It kind of, it was like mesmerizing to everyone. Right. And at that moment, we clicked immediately. Like we were just boys. He liked the way I handled everything. I had everything set up for him, made sure he had anything he needed. We did an mm. interview at the station and all this stuff. And he saw how I kind of operated. He was like impressed by that. And right. I was, I wanted to be a part of what he was doing because I wanted to put out albums. I didn't just want to be a DJ and mixing and be on the radio. Mm. I wanted to produce albums. So so I fast forward to that. We've always kept in contact. And in, in 93, he said, Hey, I really need some promotion. I want to, you know, can you help me and come on board to no limit? So mm-hmm. I came on board in no limit in 93 and promoting. And, and then, you know, part of that process in 1994, when we transitioned from, okay, we're working with in a minute or the music people distribution and mm-hmm. transitioned over to St. Charles. Cause St. Charles knew how to get the money. Mm-hmm. We started working with St. Charles and St. Charles. I had known St. Charles already because he was sending me projects too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Charles is the one who told P, you need to make Tobin your manager and have him run the label. Mm. Okay. St. Charles is the, and, and I always, you know, I try to give respect to St. Charles every chance I get. And, and right. anytime, what, like I've, I've done a lot of interviews over the years, but most, but I've done a, a significant amount of interviews since the Nolan Chronicles because people want to know mm-hmm. the story. Right. But St. Charles is the one that told P, hey, Tobin's the guy. So wow. then at that moment, I went from being a promotion guy mm-hmm. to I'm the manager and I'm, I'm the manager of Master P, business and professional, and I'm running the label. And every artist that we had, we were working with, the TRU guys and all that stuff, I was pretty much, and I know it's a conflict of interest, but I was pretty much managing everyone and, and, and including running the label itself. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when you're trying to get things off the ground, it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing yeah. cooking, the cleaning, the washing, I'm everything. And that's pretty much how it was. Right. So in 1994, when we released The Ghettos Try to Kill Me Through Saints, that was the first album we had that told the story and that it was it to me that was like okay now we're in the professional ranks before that we were doing projects and we had an album called who's the killer that was that, that started to kind of gain some momentum but mm-hmm. the ghetto trying to kill me and saint well, saint charles will tell you with that cover with the king george in the back with the gun and and P's, you know, making love to a woman on the bed. No one had ever seen an album cover like that. And it just, it, it like, we just started getting orders and people started buying it. Right. So we go from that point of people starting buying it. When the record's out, there was some guy that was, there was a song on the album called 211 Robbery. Mm-hmm. And 
there was a guy who got caught. He was robbing different people, robbing liquor stores, and he finally got caught. And when he got caught, he told everybody the reason why he did all this robbery is because he listened to Masterpiece 211 song or 211. So I think we were kind of frustrated but kind of excited because the record took off. Everyone's right. like, oh, we got to hear, what is this 211? What is this masterpiece thing? And then that took, a, took off. And mm -hmm. that's when people were kind of getting excited about Master P. That was kind of the foundation of Master mm -hmm. P. So, even, so, so I would say the first album that I was running the label and I was, you know, I was the guy and the manager and all that, the ghetto's mm -hmm. trying to kill me, it just took off. Okay. That's, that's, Man, y'all need y'all need another whole week of, of No Limit Chronicles with because I always felt that there was a lot of stuff that was still untold even after what we saw over the past two weeks. Yes, I, I would say there was a lot of things that I glossed over, whether mm -hmm. it's the California story, our transition because I was part of the transition to New Orleans, but mm -hmm. then as soon as we were like, "Hey, we're moving to New Orleans," there was a split between P and I. And, you know, and there's a, there's an entire story of him going off and obviously what he did. And there's an entire story of myself and King George mm -hmm. going off and do what we did and have the success that we had. Now, elaborate on that a little bit as far as the success that King George had, because most of the time people that are familiar with the story would probably think that once P left and went back to New Orleans, anything he left behind just fizzled and it had no success. Well, I, I think because there was no platinum records from King George, right? Mm. So King George put out, you know, King George and I put out 10 King George projects. And of wow. those 10 King George projects, seven of those were actually on the Billboard charts. So understand, even wow. though we weren't selling millions and millions of records, mm -hmm. We were, you know, when you know, being in a distribution business, when you sell an album, especially back then, you're getting about eight bucks a unit. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, King George album does 80,000 units. Do the math. We're over $600,000 in billing. Man. So, so then, you know, even if we did an album, even if we did an album that sold, you know, 20,000, uh, 20,000 right. albums. You're still looking at over 150, 160 thousand dollars in revenue. Right. So we were continuously putting out albums at a at a you know I would say a historic rate. Like mm -hmm. if you look, uh, my company's me and my entertainment. Mm -hmm. King's company that I you know I helped him start was Highness Records, okay. and every record that we put out was I would say was it went national and you could buy it all over the country. But we didn't have the units because anyone's in a distribution game back then, you mm -hmm. needed to have units. Now, being in the system is great. So if someone went in into uh, New York and they said, hey, I got to get this King George guy, they could get the album and they, they could get it shipped in. But nothing is like you having 10 or 20 or 30, 30 CDs and cassettes where you can walk in and say, wow, what's this project? Mm -hmm. Somebody's invested in this project and I got to be a part of it. Right. So yeah. that's the that's the thing. Like when people start talking about King George, well, no one ever heard of King George. Well, King George is popping on the Billboard pretty much every year for a few years, 
and he was, you know, he was rapping on other projects and he was popular and we were making a significant amount of money and we were doing shows. And I think the challenge was with that because King still felt close to P and he mm -hmm. wanted to be down with P and they were like brothers that like for, I'll give you an example. If we did a show, we did a, we did a show in Mississippi one time in front of 5,000 people I think we made like eight or $9,000 and that's a significant amount of money to perform in front of, you know, 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. Well, the next night he was in, in uh, Houston doing a show in front of 15,000 people at the summit and the mm -hmm. summits were, were at, at the time where the Houston Rockets used to play. Yeah. So oh, yeah. That kind of took his toll on King cause he was frustrated because even though we were out there putting in work, even though we we're out there making money, we just didn't get to that level of success that P got to. And I think a lot of it is Master P is a hard worker. He's a grinder. You're not going to outwork that guy. He, mm -hmm. He's like the, I would say he's the James Brown of, of hip hop because mm -hmm. you're not going to outwork him. But mm -hmm. Master P had this big machine of priority behind him that was mm -hmm. real, had money and was able to get him everywhere. And, and you know, unfortunately, uh, in our situation, they had me behind it, and I was the only individual pushing the record. Because even, I'll tell you, I was frustrated with Saints. Saint and I had a conversation about four or five weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I was really, you know, I wasn't holding a grudge, but I was kind of like, you know, now that we're older, I could just say, Saint, I was really frustrated with you because you didn't want to do a King George record. And he says, mm -hmm. man, I'm not lot of you told me I would have did that record with you, but not a lot of people were checking for King George and nobody wanted it. Yeah. He said, mm -hmm. I called the Violet Browns and all the buyers of the world. Right. Usually buy anything I had. They were like, man, we don't, we don't want that record. So it took us doing that record and up against the wall. We, we, we had, we had to push that record out. It was going on the road and promoting. And I would say Kansas city was the first market that really blew us up and they loved us. And we were able to take money from them the records that we sold there and get, get out on the road and go down that I 10 on that I 10 corridor mm -hmm. starting in San Antonio and working our way to Pensacola and back. Mm -hmm. That's how we kind of built the brand and built the name of King George and, and put us in a situation to sell a lot of records. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that it was hands off as far as the buyers who actually bought material and records and singles, albums, et cetera, um, for the major stores back then, the warehouse records, the FYEs, do you think it was their intention to say hands off of him because it would have been a conflict with the amount and the volume of albums and material that P was actually flooding their stores with, which was just making them money hand over foot? Well, I don't think that's the point because for those guys, if an album's going to sell, they don't care who it comes from because they right. want to make money. I think what happened was King wasn't known when he, when he would be on compilations, his songs weren't very strong. Mm. He was great at being a hook. He was known as the hook man. He right. did really good hooks and he would do very, the skits were funny. He did the Reverend Duron skits and he would do these different skits. So he was known as the skit guy and the hook guy. Mm -hmm. So when it was time for King George to be a solo artist, first, we weren't on no limit. So that probably was a thought like, well, P's not behind it. So we don't know. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, it was the thought process was like, well, nobody wants to hear King George rap for a full album. Even, mm -hmm. even P's 
would say that, hey, I, you know, no one wants to hear King rap for a whole album. We're going to have to take our time and develop some stuff for King to have his life for Kingpin album to come out. Right. And we were, and I think, I think partially that was true because King still had development. He mm -hmm. had ideas, but I think he wasn't able to kind of put pen to paper and really kind of flourish. And I think the one thing that happened, even mm -hmm. though, I tell you, I had CDs and cassettes and vinyl and it wasn't moving. And I was like, okay, I got every penny that I have and don't have into putting this project out. Mm -hmm. Us going on the road and getting in front of people and meeting the people like a politician and, and meeting these retailers and saying, this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And we had a, we had a, a, a one-stop Southwest Wholesale was a distributor because if, if Saint would have said, hey, I'll put your record out, mm -hmm. It would have been, a, it would, we would have rolled with Saint because, you know, I love Saint and I supported him and I respected him and he always supported and loved me. But he mm -hmm. just, like, I wasn't ready to take a financial risk on King George. Right. And Southwest Wholesale was like, you know, for us, for them, it was like, you know what? You know, let's, let's, let's see what this thing will do. And at first, it wasn't selling until there was a, uh, I can't even remember the gentleman's name. His name was Myron. He had a little, a little one-stop situation in Kansas city. And he said, Hey, you send me, you know, X amount of CDs and cassettes at $2 a CD and $1 a cassette. And I'll mm -hmm. send them, you send them to me COD. I said, you make it three and two, you got a deal. <laughs> that fine. Here's the funny story. I was so naive. I never, from a shipping perspective, I'd never sent anything COD. So I didn't realize you go to, you go set it up and you say, Hey, you know, here's the ship it, but they need it before you release it. You need to get this an X amount of dollars. Right? right. So I sent him everything. And I was like, and I was on the phone with my brother and he was like, mm -hmm. dude, you got to send that, you know, COD, you got to make sure that they pay for it. Right. And I was like, Oh my God, I sent him the units and he could have said, you know, I'm not going to pay you DC. Right. And luckily this was a stand up guy. He mm -hmm. wired me the money the same, same day God, he wired me the money. And I took that money, put a few bucks in my pocket, a few bucks in King's pocket so we could take care of some bills. And then that's when we went on the road from San Antonio to Pensacola and back. And by the time wow. we got back two or three weeks later, the mm -hmm. record picked up. We had more units into the, uh, into the system. More people were picking it up in the retail wise. And mm -hmm. two weeks after that, album was on Billboard, and it was hot. It was one of the hottest albums in the South at that point. Wow. What do you think is the highest that King George has charted on Billboard in his, in his career? Um, I would say I believe it was in, it was like 79. Okay. I think that's the highest we've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there was frustration around that because, you know, King would be 80 in the 80s. And mm -hmm. then P was in like number one, <laughs> right? Man. So it's this competition. He's like, you know, you know, King would be frustrated. And look, I was frustrated too. It wasn't just King. When I was like, man, we mm -hmm. did all this work and we're at 80. This dude's at two or yeah. what? And I think, you know, I used to have to remind King. I was like, look, man, you know, it's just, it's just me doing this. And it's you yeah. doing this road. It's two guys doing this, you know, out there grinding. And mm -hmm. P's got the whole army of priority. And, um, and I mean, that was the thing. So we had a lot of success with the King George albums. 
mm -hmm. did some really good things. We moved some units. We, we all made some, some good money. I mean, it was, it was really good run. Okay. Now you have a lot of experience. You've seen the business go from its peak came into its own. You've seen mm -hmm. technology transform the way business is done from A to Z. Yes. You know, um, and that's just in the world in general, but we in the music business definitely firsthand saw the change in the transfer. Do yep. you think in 2020, um, with the way technology is, with United Masters being what they are, with the decline over the years of, of major labels, um, we're, we live through our phones for the most part. We do everything now through our phones. We bank, we make appointments, we cancel appointments, we make dates, we do this, we do that. Everything's through our phones. But do you think even just in this country alone, with your experience, that there's an artist or a group, small group of individuals that can still have the King George type of success actually putting out product in a physical sense? Say if you came across somebody that was hot, um, production-wise, lyrically, and they only wanted to be successful in their region, two or three states. And they said, you know what? We're going to put this on Instagram. We're going to use uh, uh, Facebook. We're going to use Twitter, TikTok, Tumblr, et cetera. But we're not going to use it to the max. We're going to focus most of our energy on saying over a period of time, we're going to print up 20,000 CDs. We're still going to sell them out the trunk. We're going to go hand-to-hand. -hand. We'll do digi-cards. Because mm -hmm. that's a way for, you know, the, the, the consumer to actually get it and put it on their phone. But our focus is going to be hand-to-hand -hand physical copies. Do you think that's still possible to have that type of success throughout this country anywhere in the U.S. today? I would say to get to 80,000 albums or 80,000 records, I would say probably not mm -hmm. unless you're really hot. That's mm -hmm. that people are checking for you. Okay. I would say, could you get the twenty to thirty thousand range? Absolutely, mm -hmm. but it's it's got to be the work. Like you know, you were talking about putting up posters and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. earlier. That stuff still works. It's mm -hmm. you know, people get out. You know, COVID's a little different now, but let's say a non-COVID. You know, we're dealing with a non-COVID environment. Right. People still go to the bus stop. Still go to the grocery store. They yeah. still make these runs. Mm -hmm. And as long as you were in a situation where you're putting up and people start seeing ads everywhere and they start seeing things in, and whether it's digital magazines or print magazines or mm -hmm. newspaper and they, and you walk down and you say, Hey, here's artist X or artist Y, mm -hmm. you can build enough bus and then you're able to perform. You can move 20, 30,000 units. Right. When you start getting the 80, 90,000 units, you're going to need more than two or three States in my opinion. Right. Okay. But you can still make a significant amount of dollars mm -hmm. with your with your downloads, your digital downloads. But you can move units now. People are on this vinyl kit. Everybody okay. wants vinyl. So mm -hmm. I think between vinyl CDs, people are going back to wanting cassettes. They're getting these retro cassettes. Yeah. They're getting cassettes. They like the cassette sound, and they're doing them the MP3s. There's all kinds of things that are going on with that. Mm -hmm. There is an opportunity for you to make make money as an artist right i mean i got a call i got a call from somebody today who i put out uh i don't know if you know who safir is i put yeah safir, yeah i put out his album trigonometry uh mm -hmm. he had a song on there called the saucy nomad so i put that album yeah. out and somebody called me 
and wanted to do a deal on. And I was like, well, whatever you do, as long as you give the money to Safir, I don't, I don't really care. But somebody was asking like, hey, there are people clamoring for this. And that was a kind of thought process. Is it's like people still want that stuff, and vinyl is very popular. And you got that call today in 2020. I got it today in 2020. Someone called me, and I was just like, wow. "Well, you know, we can talk about it." But that mm -hmm. literally somebody, and it was interesting because somebody saw the No Limit Chronicles and mm -hmm. did some research and said, "Hey, I know you did the Sapphire album. You know, would you be willing to do something with it? Because I want to do vinyl." And, hmm. and especially overseas. So when you get, so in the United States is a little different, mm -hmm. but if you get to overseas, yeah. folks are still buying CDs over there and they're yes. still listening to vinyl. Yep. And even the some of the success we have with King George, mm -hmm. King George in Japan was huge. And we were generating money over there because people were, they were, they loved King George. So wow. I think if everybody stops thinking, because now you can get on a plane for fairly inexpensive and go to so many different countries. Yes. And if you're going to put yourself out there, yep. you can go, you can go out there and make yourself a good living. I mean, my friend Stoll mm -hmm. Elements is making a great living over in Germany. And then he travels to, to England and he travels. And sometimes, you know, he's doing, he's doing a combination of his original music, but he's also doing cover music too. And right. people he's mixing his cover music with, with original music when he performs, but he's selling his CD. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And but why do you think there's this disconnect though with the industry as far as a lot of executives, um, looking at artists like that, as far as what they're doing? Is it a money thing where they don't believe that they'll make enough money, they'll make enough on a return for the for the label's investment, or they just don't care because it's not the new hottest thing or the thing of the moment? Well, I would say a lot of it's because they're lazy because they don't want to do the work. <laughs> Because you have Agreed. to be, you know, you have to be in a position where you are developing artists and developing sound. And a lot of these artists, you know, if you think about it, a lot of these executives don't want to develop sound. They mm -hmm. don't want to make sure they develop an artist. To your point, they want to be the hot person, right? They, right. oh, if someone's hot, we want to sign them. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I always knew I had a hot record, a record on Billboard. A record executive would call my house, and mm -hmm. it would be. Wait, like how do I'm unlisted? How do I get my call? Somehow they get my phone number and they call me and they want to talk about it and then they want me to go on a plane in New York or LA and have a conversation. That's mm -hmm. how I now when my album was off the billboard charts so while I was working on the next record or had all these other things, you know, no one would return my call. Yeah. And that's because folks mm -hmm. are lazy. They right. don't to they don't want to do the work because it it's hard. It's harder now than it was, honestly, for me in the nineties. Mm -hmm. I had a successful career in the 90s moving into 2000 because I was able to get out there and half the battle was if I was in the system as long as you picked up my album it was going to be in the system I was going to mm -hmm. go to the warehouses or the Hastings or all these different locations right now there's so many different people you can listen to you you can say hey I got an album oh, I got an album too I'm on Spotify I'm on iTunes or whatever mm -hmm. so it takes someone real special to do the digital marketing and the physical marketing and develop the sound for an artist before they do anything else. Right. So if you're doing those type of things, you can have success, but most people don't. They want, this is just the society we're in, even from the artist perspective. A mm -hmm. lot of the artists don't want to do the work. They want to just say, hey, I want to just drop an album, 
and it's gonna it's gonna go viral i'm gonna go meet some girls and smoke some weed and hang out and that's not how the game Mm -hmm. works the game works you get out there um i've told artists and and even though i'm retired from the game Mm -hmm. i still kind of talk to artists and have conversations and i always say this every night of the week this is obviously not the COVID environment but every night of the week there is a club in your local town that's doing something whether they're 50 people there or 100 people there. The key mm-hmm. for you is to get in front of as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I always tell these artists, if you have one song, do six dis- different versions of that song. Right. So if you got six remixes to that one song, you're going to get some sort of sound that people like. Whether you do a rock remix where you put a little guitar behind it, or you, you take out the melody and you do more of a hip-hop or, or East Coast sound where it's just the drum beats. Whatever you do, have a variety of mixes. So if someone plays you in the club, mm-hmm. all they have to do is pull out their phone now and hit Shazam and say, whose album is this? Right. Oh, this is this artist. Let me download. Mm-hmm. You have to think outside of the box and you have to be willing to work. Right. People aren't. Yeah, and that's very true. Very true. A uh, couple more things. We're going to wrap this up. I know we're not trying to hold you all night because I know you got a lot of things to do. Um, um, Little Troy. Yes. That was one of the albums that I actually did street promotions on back in the day. Had no idea that you were involved with that project, involved with, with the okay. album with him. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. So I was doing... Uh, he had an artist or he had a group called Maps 187. And, and mm-hmm. So Troy had his own label, Shortstop Records. Mm-hmm. Most know that. Right. So he had, an, he had a group called Maps 187. He was trying to promote him in California. Mm-hmm. And a radio DJ named Mean Green said, hey, my boy Lil Troy is looking for some promotion on the West Coast. You know, mm-hmm. come down and, you know, and let's chop it up and see what we can do. So I go down to, to the South to houston spend some time with troy a couple of days with troy i come back i have gear i'm promoting his albums promoting this album on the west coast mm-hmm. the only problem is he didn't have enough units on the west coast mm-hmm. so in order to sell the record i'm like man you gotta you gotta get your distributor to move more units to the west coast so i can really get this going because we're going to sell whatever you have because he had an incredible album right. but not enough right so Troy will tell you anytime anything he did, he probably sold three to four thousand. Probably four thousand was probably the most units that he ever sold. So he was a little frustrated and he was talking about, man, I'm gonna quit this music. I'm not making the money I think I should make. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, instead of you know signing the artist, I said, why don't we do your album or do my album? And he was like, What? He's like, you know, I'm not really rapping. I said, That's okay. I said, we could put a project together. I said, it's basically, you know. Um, we put you on the forefront. We put mm-hmm. our songs together. You can rap on a few songs, but it's pretty much going to be the little Troy album. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And then, then that was when the recording process started. Mm-hmm. So what he and I decided, like, look, you take care of production because he, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, the production we were doing was not as good. We were selling a lot of records, but mm-hmm. the production we were doing, except for maybe a few records, were not a few albums, I should say, were not as good as what he was doing. Uh, Grim Rhodes is the person who produced the album, was an incredible producer. And he was like, he was like, good. So I said, you focus on that. 
I'm good at doing the distribution and the retail distribution and marketing. Mm. And we're going we're gonna to go ahead and ride this out. So we had one guy named Stan Cobble. We call him SK. He mm-hmm. was kind of doing the street in, in, in promotion. I was doing the retail and marketing. And Troy was doing, was doing the production. And it was kind of like a three-tier three situation. Mm-hmm. So when we we released the album, we went to uh, we went to the Kappa Beach party, which is like college party, big college party there in Galveston, Texas. Right. We gave everybody in the world we could CDs, cassettes, whatever they had in their car, and everybody was playing it. Every party we went to, we got the DJ to play it. It it, mm-hmm. it just took off like wildfire. So all these people in these colleges, these young people. Mm-hmm. They went to their ser- separate towns after the spring break, and it blew up everywhere. Mm-hmm. And people were playing it. The DJs were requesting it. We uh, we got it on the box, KBXX. It was spinning like crazy. Everyone loved the record. And the album, you know, I was able to work with Southwest Wholesale and Gonzalez and all these different one-stops to get it everywhere it needed to be mm-hmm. nationally. And it just took off like wildfire. I mean, we sold before... The unfortunate thing about it, we sold about 389,000. It was either 387 or 389. We, mm-hmm. we, we sold approximately 389,000 albums before uh, it went over to Universal. Now, the thing that was so crazy to me, if Troy was in a situation he had some legal issues, and if he didn't have those legal issues, we probably could have pushed that album gold just independently. And I wanted him to wait till we go gold because if you you push an album independently gold through one yeah. stop, it's yeah. it's historic. Yeah. And you know you're pretty much going to be able to get any amount of money you want. Nobody's exactly. going to getting what you want. But because he was having that situation, this legal situation, he had to make a move and he needed cash. And he needed mm-hmm. more cash than I was able to provide him all at one at one time. Right. Wow. So. Long story boring, went to uh, mm-hmm. Republic Universal, had a conversation. Um, he signed on the dotted line. We got, you know, some significant amount of dollars, not as much as we would have gotten if we would have pushed it gold. But, you know, decisions, we, the decision was, it was mainly choice because ultimately it's his career. And even though I wanted them to hold off, he was, you know, because of his legal troubles, he needed to make a decision to make a move. Okay. Um, I want to talk for a brief minute about SMG Solar St. Charles from your perspective. Um, This is the SMG Solar podcast along with First Fan Radio. Um, St. Charles and I are now, you know, full partners in this company. This is the first time from my understanding that he's actually had a partner on a business level. Um, So that's one of the reasons why we're moving into other entities as far as media and to bring things current with what the industry and society and everything is now in 2020. Um, Yes. I've always heard people speak very highly of him. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never heard anybody speak down on him. What I hear a lot is his business acumen. The past couple of months, we've been um, partners. I thought I knew some things. (laughs) (laughs) he's reminded me every day of what I don't know even though I thought I knew it Um, but just from your observation your point of view being around him back in those days and even up till now even though it may not be as much 
what do you think his gift is? What do you think he's provided? And what do you think his legacy is, as well as SMG as a company in the business? Well, I would say that for Saint, he always knew what people wanted. Mm -hmm. He knew how to get kind of when you're in the industry and you're in music he he knew how to get the music to the right people mm -hmm. to write the people he served a purpose of solving a problem mm -hmm. because the problem is for all, anyone who's in the music business how do i get my music out there and if i'm a consumer or i'm a fan how do i get different sounding music or maybe it's the type of sound of music i want mm -hmm. so i would the most important thing he did what he was so great at he understood the sound of records and because he was, you know, obviously he's a lot older than, than, than I was at the time. And, mm -hmm. and he was just an OG. He always understood what people wanted and how to get that to them. Right. So the more that he, if he heard a sound, he would tell us, Hey, look, you need to really be talking about these things or, Hey, mm -hmm. this is the kind of sound that I think that people are going to like. And when we put these albums together, he understood how to, you know, promote, records at multiple records at the same time he understood how to do your one sheet and put the put the right names on the one sheet to get people excited about it mm -hmm. we would put names on the one sheet of albums that we didn't even have and then go back and get the artist afterwards because <laughs> and, and, and then and then the thing that was so great this is the greatest thing i think like saint taught me so much but this is the thing i always remember we put it out we we would have our one sheet then we go mm -hmm. back to get done and then the album's done, and then we push the album back another three or four weeks and tell them, hey, we're about to get this big artist on it, then jump the orders up, and then drop the album. And then mm -hmm. the next thing you know, people, we'd have so much, we have so many units in a particular store, it would just fly off the shelves. <laughs> then we'd be on Billboard. And the beautiful thing about being on Billboard, retailers are like, wait a minute, we don't have enough of this unit. It's on, these units, they're on Billboard. Then the mm -hmm. more units they brought in, people would be like, oh my God, who is this artist? Who are these groups? Man, I got to get this thing because it's got to be hot because look how many of these that there are. And yeah. then it was a beautiful cycle. So we'd always do, put people's name on it that may not be on the album. We'd go run and go get them. And then we'd push the date back so people would be like, oh my, they're clamor for a record. Yeah. And he would always say, for example, if we had an album that had 30,000 or 40,000 pre-orders, he'd say, push the date back. He would say, hey, man, we got to push the date back three, four weeks. Push the yeah. date. we push the date back, and sometimes we jump another ten or 12,000 units on a pre-order. Mm. So that's the difference between, you know, if you talk about ten or 12,000 uh, units on a pre-order, mm. you're talking about another fifty to $60,000. Easy. So, easy. So, Basically, part of that sixty thousand is going in Saint's pocket, but a mm -hmm. significant amount of that money is going in our pocket. And just by us doing that, and we can increase the revenue by sixty or by forty thousand or fifty thousand, our portion of whatever that revenue would be. Mm -hmm. Man, it was just ingenious. And I all from that time, I always did that. It was work. It was amazing. Hmm. Question: um, Do you think that same um, method? could work in, in this day and age in music with the digital stuff going on? I think it could work. I think the biggest thing is if you are, if you are letting people know that the project's coming out and you yeah. let people know that who it is, and then you say, hey, the album's going to come out and this it's going to drop digitally on this day. Oh, no, by the way, no, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop in 30 days because we're going to go get this artist that's well-known. <laughs> 
I yeah. guarantee you, people are going to be like, yes, I want it. Mm. Definitely. And what's, the, what's the process of, you know, if, if, you know, for me, if I were in the game, I'd figure out a way, how do we, how do we set something up with some of these platforms where people can pre-sell? And I know maybe mm. some of the larger artists do that. I don't know, maybe the Beyonce's and those folks mm-hmm. do how do we get these local artists or, or these regional artists to be able to, hey, you could pre-order or pre, pre-buy this album for, for a discount. So maybe you're saying, hey, for a full album, you're going to buy $9.99. But you know what? If you pre-order this thing, I'll give it to you for $6.99. Mm. For most people, they, when they buy an app, they'll, they'll spend $6, $10, $10, for an app or I'm going to fly or I'm going to drive Mario or whatever they're going to do. They'll spend that money. So oh, yeah. if you say, hey, for $6.99, you can get this artist or you can wait and pay $10.99 or $9.99. Most people say, oh, $6.99 and I'm getting how many songs? Oh, man, I'm going to give you 18 right. or 20 songs. And that was another thing Saint taught us too. Give people more for their money. If you yeah. give them, they're looking at a, uh, at that time, an Ice Cube album where they're looking at a Master P or a King George album and, and Ice Cube has 11 or 12 songs and you've got 19, 20, 21 tracks and they mm-hmm. may know Ice Cube more, but they're like, eh, man, for $14.98, I'm getting two more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. $17.98 or $18.98, I'm going to get Ice Cube with 10 or 11 songs or 12 yeah. songs. You might be able to get them to get a King George album or or, or a Master P album. Right. Are you still on good terms with King George now, as well as Lil Troy? I would say King and I are friendly. I mean, we mm. don't. You know, we we don't work together or anything. I talked to King a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about doing a. He's got a movie he's trying to get out. He's got a DVD and some other stuff he's trying to get out. We talked a little bit about that, but mm-hmm. we aren't. You know, we are best of buds. But I say we were friendly. I mean, Troy and I are good. We, you know, Troy and I probably talk. We talk mm-hmm. month, multiple times a month or monthly. We text a lot more and we talk these days. But, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, we. There have been a couple of interviews that people are talking to me and they're like, wait a minute, Lil Troy? And they call Lil Troy and we're on the interview together. So <laughs> I talked to I, I text him at least probably weekly, but we talk, we talk monthly. Well, my last question, um, uh, Chill, you got anything else before we wrap? Um, I want to go back to um, what he was, when he was talking about developing sound. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a big problem today with a lot of independent artists coming out. Because they don't yeah. take the time to really develop their sound. They they straight from the bedroom with it, straight to the uh, SoundCloud. Um, they yeah. using all these uh, mastering. Uh, so, it's yeah. so many. It's so many different things that they do, and then yeah. they expect stuff to just happen overnight. So I just want you to just enlighten some of the listeners and viewers on um, what you mean by developing your sound. Some of the, the elements that uh, they would do to develop their sound. Well, here's the problem. The problem is everybody nowadays thinks because they got this software that they're ma- they're, they know how to master or they know how to master. And it's not true. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying if you don't have a lot of money, you're going to have to do a lot yourself. But I, you need to educate yourself on putting the right mix and does it sound professional. If you listen to the SoundCloud, there's so many projects that I get sent. People say, hey, can you, TC can you help me? Tobin can you help me? And I listen to it, I'm like, the first thing is, it's not professional. It doesn't have the right 
and when we say sound, because music's subjective, whether they like your album better than mine or mine better than yours, that's subjective. But when you listen to it, do you hear the hiss? And, and is there a high end that you hear a hiss? Is the bottoms is the bottom so low that it just sounds it's all muffled? It's got to be a clear sound. So I tell artists, listen to whoever your favorite or the hottest rapper that you like. Don't listen to it for the music content. Listen mm. to it for how it sounds from a quality perspective. Because quality is not, not subjective. The other thing is, too, know who you are as an artist. Are you making a record or making a song or making an album for your boys because you want to smoke weed in your garage? <laughs> or are you trying to do this till you get it to the world? Yeah. So I, oftentimes I tell artists when they talk to me and they ask me questions, I say, look, this is not a song. Would you pay 99 cents for this song? Well, I don't know, man. And I don't know if I would. Then, okay, this is not a good record. When a record comes on, and I'll tell you from my perspective, I know a hit record from whether it came in the 70s or it comes right now. I'm not one of those old guys that say, get off my lawn in 1990. I sold all these hundreds of thousands of records. Mm -hmm. It's really about what are they saying? And for those young and up and development artists, I'll tell you right now, get your pen and paper. This is how you make a hit record. You got a beat that women want to shake their tail to and dance to. It's got a good hook. And in the lyrics, you're saying something that guys are like, yeah, I get it. Those three things, you will always have a hit record. So even if you think about it, Whatever's popular today, you know, I, I, I listen to that money back, yo, one, two, one, two, three, yeah. that mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. If you listen to the hook and you, and you listen to the beat, the beat's got you like, yeah, that's it. You listen to the hook and women want to dance to that record and dudes are like, yeah, why would I trade my girl in for a penny? Why, my, my girl's a dime. And that's why it's a hit <laughs> so if everybody who's listening, who wants to be an artist, thinks about when I hear that record, is that something that makes somebody want to dance? And I shouldn't say just women because I don't want to be sexist, but anyone who's into dancing makes them want to mm -hmm. dance. And it's right. got something that, that guys can say, yeah, I get with. And it's got a hook that people can repeat. It's going to be a hit. So going mm -hmm. back to your kind of thought, the, the, the question, your sound is who you are as an artist. Okay. Be true to who you are. If you're going to be a country artist, it's okay to, to like a certain style of country, but be who you are and be true to you are. If you're going to be a hip hop artist, if you don't know anything about, uh, if you don't know anything about the streets, why rap about it? Now, right. <laughs> I agree right. with you on that. Too. Too. Right. So, okay. um, I got one more question I want to ask. Um, going, you know, because you spent a lot of time with No Limit. And one of the things I paid attention to with No Limit was the way Master P, I'm going to just say you guys as a collective, how y'all was able to just take all of your artists and give them some kind of, uh, in, a, in a sort of way, like a platform, you know, to be heard, seen, and yeah. distributed. How did, how did y'all pull that off? Like, to get everybody their own shine. Like, you know, on down to um, some of the people... There's so many to name right now. I don't want to mess nobody yeah, up. Yeah, so what we always did, everybody rapped on everybody's record. Yeah. Even even back, like, you know, and I can't really speak on 
you know, 97 to 99, which that was the height of No Limit, and by 99, it kind of slowed down. But I will say, it was always everyone wrapped on everyone's record, and on the inside of those old school, you know, when you got your J card, and you got the CD cover, you were waiting for this person. And what we did was, what if somebody was, was really talented a rapper, and we really felt like someone like Silk was a real talented rapper, we gave him more verses and hooks and those things. And we felt you weren't as talented as a rapper, but we thought that you could sell units. We'd probably give you a hook or maybe a verse here and there. Mm-hmm. And it's really about what, if you think about No Limit Records, sometimes you would, there were so many tracks that we were doing mm-hmm. that I could say, and we would just record relentlessly. And that's really the, the answer to your question. Yeah. We would record so much, I could say, hey, uh, we got 70 songs. 80 songs and we would say okay these 15 are going to go for this artist these 10 are going to go for this artist and that's how we'd split it up and yeah. then we would say okay this artist we wanted to do two or three records that are going to really shine and really really get their sound and get them out there yeah. and drop those out so that's another thing i would say to artists who want to want to really perform their perform and want to hone their craft just record 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 it doesn't mean you're going to put it out. You might listen to have something like, ah, man, I, I don't really know. I'm not really feeling it. And then maybe you, you work on some more music and you come back to it. The more songs you, you record, the better you become. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if you were going to cold call, if you're in a sales business, you cold call. If you cold call 10 times, you're probably going to struggle. If you sit out and cold call 100 times, by the time you get to your 15th or 16th call, you that, that's rolling off your tongue. It's roll. It's the same when you're recording records. The first two, you're kind of nervous. You're not for sure what to do. By the time you've done eight, 10, 12, 15, 20, mm-hmm. 25, 30, it's, it, the, it flows. You're able to write. You're able to make the music you want and continue mm-hmm. to go. you got to put in the work. Yeah. And that's really how we did it. We just would record a bunch of songs and say, these five are going to go on this album. These five are going to go on, on, on the TRU album. These five yeah. are going to go down south hustle and that's just how we did we just continued to record yeah because because it sounded it, you know it sounded so easy because i always wondered that and i'm like mia x uh mr Servon, um you know just breaking them all down to give them their own individual album it just always had me you know like pondering like how did they do that like with all that with that many artists <laughs> on the label like just know. keep recording man the more you record <laughs> the tupac thing right you can yeah. the man passed away and you're like, oh, a new Tupac album. Yeah. And just continue to record. We were able to say these songs and these, and then sometimes we felt we didn't have something strong enough. We'd go in and say, okay, we need to record another record to go on this album or whatever. But it was just all about the amount of music and songs that we were able to do. Yeah. And then as my transition, the, the early parts of Beat Spot a Pound, it, you know, then other people came on later, but we kind of, that was the way we did it. We had Ali doing track. We had uh, Larry D who was doing uh, SMG doing beats for us. EA Ski was doing beats for us. Oh, yeah, EA Ski. Oh, yeah. shout out EA. Yeah, shout out EA. Uh, K. Lou, um, KLC from the Beast by the Pound, Carlos Stevenson, Moby Dick. I mean, oh, we yeah. just were always, always recording. It was just really important. Wow. Just keeping all the artists in the studio, like with the yeah. producers. Absolutely. That, that, that was key. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's my question. That's all I had right there. <laughs> <laughs> just get as many beats as you can and start writing. That's, that's <laughs> really the formula. 
Yeah. If, for all you artists out there watching, man, y'all just got some game and we ain't charged. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah, ready to wrap it up. Wrap it up, uh, Tobin. We appreciate you spending time with us, taking time out your schedule. Um, I just want to close with this. Um, bring us up to speed on what's going on with you, because to me, you always struck me, you know, even knowing of you before actually having conversation face to face, I always perceived your reputation to be that of a businessman. So bring us up to speed on from a business level, business perspective, what's going on with you right now? Yes. So I'm a, I'm a professor at Holy Names University in Oakland. I teach business courses hmm. there, sports management, business management, marketing, marketing research. So that's one of my focuses. Mm -hmm. um, I started a beverage company doing hard cider, 6.7% mm -hmm. alcohol called Psycho Cider. Um, so that's really one of the things I'm focused on. I've, I've kind of used the everything that I learned from the St. Charles's of the world <laughs> and about distribution and different products. And it's like I'm dropping flavors like I used to drop albums with P and then, and, and then I do solo. And then the other thing is I've got a platform. I use Costin and Hammer uh, Network. It's a network of podcasts. And, uh, and I use that platform to raise money for Special Olympics. Okay. So myself and one, yeah, myself and one of my former students, Josh Hammer, uh, we mm -hmm. did an event called Hawk Mania. It was a crazy uh, wrestling event. And we were able, and, and, and shout out to, to, to my man, uh, Armand Carr, man, that, that guy is from the, the voice from the Quiet Storm, KBLX in uh, mm. Oakland. He, mm -hmm. he, he showed us so much love. And we were able to grant a, a wish to mm -hmm. a young lady with cancer who wound up going to Greece. And, you know, it's $10,000 to grant a wish. We were able to raise that money. Now mm -hmm. we're raising money for the Special Olympics. So Costin and Hammer Network, we're doing that. So uh, teaching college. Um, focused on psycho cider and, and selling a ton of cider. And then the, the last thing is the CHN, the Costin and Hammer Network, where we're raising money for, uh, for the Special Olympics. So I'm always doing something. Yeah, that's well, big, man. That's huge right there, man. We got to give a big round of applause for that, man. Like, absolutely. Pick them up, pick them up, pick them up. <laughs> Any way that we can help you, anything we can contribute, um, just always reach out and let us know. That's never going to be a problem. Anything we can do, thank you. Just let us know. Um, last question, I promise. Do you see there being an industry? No, we don't want to wear out our welcome on the first go around. We definitely want to leave the door open for you to come back. But five years from now, three years from now, do you see the industry still being the way it is? Do you see even a decade from now? What do you think the future holds within the next three, five to 10 years or so for the recording industry? Because it's changed so much over the past 25 years. Where do you think it'll be within that time frame or somewhere in that time frame? I think things will be, I think things will be, we're talk, we'll be talking about apps and, and recording on apps and, mm -hmm. and distribution on apps. And I mean, I think we're, we're already seeing those things with TikTok and putting music behind you and dancing and all that stuff. And I think that that's the wave of the future. The more you're focused on adding technology to music and how that works, I think three, five years from now, I'm going to be able to go on an app and, and, and record myself singing, dancing, whatever it is, yeah. and make a, you know, make my own future and, and drop albums like that, really. Right. Okay. 
Well, that's a good thing to know. And we'll just change with the technology and keep growing. Um, if that's it, fellas, I don't have anything else. Um, you don't have anything else, Shell? Just to be sure before nah, we cut man, out of here, Mister Costa, man, it, it's been a pleasure, man. I, we appreciate having you on, man. I, um, he answered all my questions, and uh, he also answered some questions for some people that have been bugging me. So. <laughs> now, now, now I don't seem like I'm the bad guy no more. You know what I mean? But for uh, now, for these five minutes, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, give, yeah. give it till tomorrow. They'll have you back on the hot seat. <laughs> but um, sincerely, from uh, SMG, a Solar Music Group, and First Fam Radio, we thank you. We appreciate your contributions. You're welcome yes, to come back here anytime. anytime. Thank okay. you, guys. You guys are great. I love what you're doing, and I'm glad you guys are helping so many young artists and developing them and getting their yeah. music out to the world, man. That is that is fabulous. I appreciate you guys so much. We thank you for that because we're definitely on a mission. We ain't got started yet, though. This relaunch is going to be about another, I would say, nine months in total. So it, it will be a good year. But trust me, when we spark, they will know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they will definitely know. Appreciate you. Tova Costin, everyone. Give them a round of applause. <laughs>